And this time, having just spoken to God in prayer, we will now hear from God's word. This morning during the preaching, we're going to grapple with the question of how God's love and God's judgments go together. And so we're going to hear four texts now that will set up how we will talk about God's judgment and how it relates to his love. And so first, Sarah Harmon will read excerpts from Genesis 6 and 7 that are about the days of Noah when God sent a flood to judge the world and wiped out all living things. John Haluda will then read uh, from Isaiah 26. Chuck Campbell will read from 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 14, and then Rob will finish up by reading uh, Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. Now, those last two, are you'll notice, are New Testament passages, and they will reference God's judgment, and so we're kind of from the get-go dispelling the myth that judgment is just an Old Testament theme. It is a theme that runs the whole way through the Bible, and so that's one thing we should see this morning as these texts are being read. Let me let me pray one more time and ask God for his blessing upon his word, and then uh, you members can come and read for us. Lord, as we uh, fix our gaze upon your word and turn our hearts there, we ask that you would speak of all of the, the voices that we will hear in this room, none as important as yours. And so I pray that through uh, our lips this morning, whether it's the reading of your word or the preaching, God, your voice would resound in our hearts and you would address us. You would encourage us. You would exhort us. You would uh, challenge us and correct us where needed for our good. And uh, that your, your word this morning uh, would be living and active as we listen and hear it. So open up our ears to hear and our eyes to see beautiful and wonderful things from your word this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. This is Genesis 6, verses 11 through 14. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Then Genesis 7, verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Isaiah 26, 7 through 10. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit with me earnestly seeks you. 
For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish and at peace. Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 to 8. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Well, if you were with us last week, you heard Ryan summarize uh, that we will be hearing about the love of God at various times throughout the year in a sermon series we're calling Love Abounding. Uh, Several weeks ago, we saw in the first sermon from 1 John 4 that, that twice in that chapter, John says, God is love. And the main point of that sermon and and the series as a whole is that if we want to see what a portrait of love looks like, we need look no further than God. He is the definition of what love is. He is love. This is complicated, uh, however, because there are aspects of God's character that we do not typically associate with love. And I think one of these is judgment. In his book, uh, The Rule of Love, Jonathan Lehman observes several assumptions that our culture makes about love, and this was one of them. He says that our culture assumes that love means unconditional acceptance and the end of judgment. Unconditional acceptance, the end of judgment. That what, that's what it means for you to love me or me to love you, says the, the culture in which we live. You must always accept me. You must never judge everything that I do. The popular belief is that love and judgment are opposites. They, they mix about as well as oil and water. 
Now, the fruit of living under this kind of cultural assumption is that I think it tempts many Christians who read their Bibles to doubt God's love, or at least to be hesitant or ashamed when we read texts like we just read, when we encounter how blatantly and how often he issues judgments. We may talk with someone about his mercy and forgiveness, his uh, generosity and love, but what do we say when someone asks about God killing people in the Old Testament or flooding the earth and wiping out all flesh? I, I know I've clammed up in those moments, and perhaps you have too. But if God's love and his judgment actually go together, Perhaps we need not clam up. Perhaps we'll be able to embrace God's love more freely. Perhaps we'll be able to trust his care more fully. And perhaps we'll be able to be more passionate and unashamed of him before the world. And so this morning, I want to uh, take the bull by the horns and ask, how can God be love when at the same time he is so clearly a God who issues judgment? Uh, now, just in case you're here and you're, you're not very familiar with the Bible, uh, I want to be clear that, that we don't have to read very far in the Bible to come across just this blatant assertion that, yes, God does judge the wicked. He, he judges peoples. He judges nations. A few moments ago, we heard of one of God's acts of judgment when he said, sent a global flood to kill all flesh except for Noah and those who were with him in the ark. Uh, That's just one among many of God's acts of judgment. Let me give you a few more. God judged Adam and Eve when he banished them from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.24. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, when he supernaturally rained down fire and sulfur on on them to destroy it in Genesis 19.24. God judged Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt by sending plagues and killing every firstborn of every Egyptian family in Exodus 12.12. God judged the Israelites when he made them wander in the desert for 40 years, Deuteronomy 1.35. God judged the latent of Canaan when he used Israel to slaughter and destroy the seven nations that lived there previously, Deuteronomy 7.1 and 2. God judged King David for his adultery with Bathsheba by appointing David's son, Absalom, to rise up against him in mutiny, 2 Samuel 12, 11. And ultimately, the Old Testament closes with God judging the kingdoms of Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness when he exiles them to foreign lands. The, the foreign nations of Assyria and Babylon come in, conquer them, carry them off, and that's recounted in 1 Chronicles 5.26 and 2 Chronicles 36.17. And so the question we're asking is, how can these acts and dozens more like them come from a God of love? How can that be? Now, the difficulty, on the one hand, seems plain, That's a difficult thing to reconcile. But when we turn to the Bible and ask that question, the answer is actually not overly complicated. The answer is this. It's it's yes, God is love, but he is love that judges. 
In fact, God's judgment is a necessary expression of his love for a world of sin. And perhaps at this point uh, in the message, you find that hard to believe or a little hard to swallow. I hope it'll be easier to see and and more apparent by the time we're done. And so what I want to do is I want to take our time. I want to consider two biblical principles about God's judgment that we see in scripture and some of the texts that we just read. And then I want to conclude and, and show, yes, God's judgment is in fact an expression of his love. So two principles about God's judgment, and then we'll conclude with how his judgment is an expression of his love. So the first thing on our way to see how God's judgment and his love go together, the first thing we have to see is the principle that God judges evil. We have to be really clear and understand what and who it is that receives God's judgment. What is the object of God's judgment? And when we turn to the Bible, we find it clear that God judges evil. He is not some haphazard judge. He doesn't just randomly issue a judgment like Zeus throwing lightning wherever he will. No, he's very um, formulaic, very predictable. He judges evil. For our purposes this morning, we can think of evil simply as anti-love. Evil looks upon the God of love in all of his goodness and greatness, his holiness his wisdom, his power, and he looks at that God of love and evil says, well, I don't want him. I don't need him. I'm against him. I'm turning away from him. Evil is anti-love. Evil is anti the God of love. And for us, often this notion, when, when we participate in evil, when we sin, it comes from the belief, well, God is not actually loving, meaning that he's I think in this moment, he's actually keeping something from me that is good, that that I deserve to have. This has been uh, the tactic of Satan and the tactic of sin from the very beginning, has it not? If you've read the opening few chapters of the Bible, you know that, that the serpent, Satan, came to our first parents. He came to Adam and Eve. And what did he say? Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, this is the the, the words of the serpent talking to Eve. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of the fruit that God had forbidden, your eyes will be opened. And you, Adam, you, Eve, you will be like God. And so Satan is saying, he's, he's deceiving, weaving this web of deception, saying, You know, if you think about it, Adam, if you think about it, Eve, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't fully love you. You need to think for yourself because he's keeping something from you. Adam and Eve, you need to be people who make your own decisions. You can't trust a God who keeps good things from you. So take what you need and enjoy it. Do you see how that that argument is targeting God's love? it's, It's making Adam and Eve question God's love for them. Now, you and I might not consider Adam and Eve's transgression of eating some forbidden fruit. We might not consider that a great evil. I mean, after all, it, it seems like it doesn't really hurt anybody, right? 
Um, but if we continue reading on, we find out that it actually hurts everybody. If we look at what it unleashes, just one generation later, Adam's son, Cain, commits the first murder. He, he jealously rises above his brother Abel and strikes him down in cold blood in the open field. And so just one generation later, from Adam and Eve turning from God, we come across the first murder. Just a few chapters and generations after that, we came across the words that Sarah read for us this morning in Genesis 6, verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And so what we see is that any time sin occurs, any time people turn away from the God of love, we issue in this plague of evil, of anti-love. Adam and Eve's one act of turning away from God resulted in just generations later of a world full of murder, violence, greed, dishonesty, cover-ups, abuse, fits of rage, lust, etc. And so the whole world became a world of great evil. And what we're saying is that is what God judges. He judges evil. He judges anti-love. And when we say God judges evil, we need to be clear that, that he just doesn't hold a bad opinion of it, although he does. He just doesn't declare and say, hey, that's evil, yet he does. That's, that's what we tend to think when we think of someone being judgmental or judgy, right? They just go around with these lofty opinions of what is right and what is wrong. But God doesn't stop there. When we say God judges evil, we mean that he actually destroys evil. And that was the whole purpose of the flood, right? To make an end of all flesh. God judges evil, and when he does, evildoers are swept away into death and destruction. Now, I know that the reality of God's judgment uh, can be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable to talk about. It can be uncomfortable to hear. It can be uncomfortable to preach about. It can make us bristle or squirm, uh, perhaps even a little. And, and if that's you this morning, uh, I just want you to know I can identify. I think we all can. But before we close this point about God judging evil, I want us to notice how different our response is from that of people like Isaiah and Peter and the early church. Did you catch that in, in what John read from Isaiah 26? Let me read it again. Isaiah says, it's in the path of your judgments, O Lord, that we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul." My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Isn't that a little odd? Isaiah longs for God's judgment. He's looking forward to it. And Isaiah is someone, if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah knew something about God's judgment. He prophesied about God's judgment and here he is longing for it. Second Peter 3, verse 12, we heard Chuck read as Peter addresses 
Christians that they should be waiting for, quote, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God's judgment. Why is it that we bristle and squirm and feel uncomfortable with that which Isaiah and the early church longed for and hastened? Why why do we respond differently? Well, I think this takes us to the second principle that connects God's judgment to his love. The first was that we need to realize that God judges evil. And the second is that we have to understand that God's judgment has a purpose. You see, I think Isaiah and Peter in the early church, they longed for God's judgment because they saw God's purpose in it. We just talked about how evil first entered the world and all of the effects that it caused. I want us to imagine for just a moment, what do you think those opening chapters of Genesis were like from God's perspective? Because he was there, he was witnessing it. You see, the God of love, page one of the Bible, created the world good. We read before before any sin entered the world, that in six days, day by day, God brought to fruition this overwhelmingly good plan for creation. He architected it, built it day by day. He separated the light from the dark, day from night, water from land, skies from earth. He brought forth plant life, animals, humans. They just explode onto the scene in bright displays of color, brilliance, balance, order. And everything, by the time he's done, is the way it should be. He takes the seventh day to rest, to just say, ah, yes, this is good. Six times, day by day, we're told that when God looks upon what he has made, he deems it good. And after it's all complete, he looks on and proclaims that the universe, it's very good. It's just as it should be. There's abundance and peace and joy everywhere. If CNN existed in that day, every headline would be good news. There would be zero bad news because only good things were happening. That's all the world had was goodness because that's the way God has made it. Can you imagine that? I think it's hard for us to imagine but I beg us to try. One, one visual that came to my mind as I thought about this was, I don't know if you've seen the, the popular movie The Lion King. Uh, they recently did a remake, either version will work, the original animated one or the newer one for this illustration. If you've seen those movies, I want you to, to remember the opening scene. I remember sitting as a child in the theater just being swept away as the movie opens. There's this beautiful uh, African chant in harmony that first comes over the speakers, and then the big screen uh, just is filled with vibrant trees, flowers, rivers, mountains as it opens on this African prairie. And then species after species of exotic animal are shown, uh, many of them with young, and how they just live in peace. There's birds and giraffe and hippopotamuses, elephants and antelope. And on and on, the scene just builds as the visuals and the music come to focus on one mountain. And on that one mountain, we learn that the king of this jungle lives. 
as the kingly lion Mufasa walks out onto Pride Rock, all of the animals of this place gather to him and they bow in uh, glory before him. And they all do it willingly, happily, just honoring their king because the kingdom is, is right, all is well with the world. I think that's just a small picture of what Eden was like. God walked among his creatures. He conversed with Adam and Eve. He ruled over this wonderful dominion where all was good and just and right. And all of his creatures were gathered to him, not forcibly, but willingly, joyfully bowing before the Lord of the land. They had no reason to doubt his care or or think him distant because he was right there. And his goodness was just evident. Wherever they looked, they saw his abundance and graciousness. It was all very good. But that version of creation didn't continue. And it is ruined. In the movie, when the the villain Scar takes over Pride Rock, we, we see the same prairie. But as the as the scene passes over it, all that vibrant life color, harmony, order, it's gone. The landscape is now arid, brown, dead, decaying. And again, I can remember as a child this sense of just sorrow that something so beautiful had turned into a wasteland. It was just senseless ruin. Why couldn't the wonder of it all continue? When God looks down on his earth in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, I think he feels something like that, but much more powerfully. We didn't read verses 5 and 6 before the flood, but let me read them for you now. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It is from a place of grief and heartache and God's desire to see the wonder and glory and goodness of his creation restored that the judgment of the flood comes. Verses 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The flood is not a picture of a God who is quick to anger or a God who feels some delight in global death. The flood is God rebooting his creation. He's shutting it down. He's washing it clean. And he's turning it back on again, this time with Noah in the place of Adam. 
the purpose of God's judgment is restoration, cleansing, so that his creation can be restored and rebuilt into its original goodness again. That same purpose is at the heart of every example of God's judgment in the Bible. It was not just true of the flood. It was true of the plagues in Egypt that rescued enslaved Israel. It was true of the conquest of Canaan that eradicated cultures that were so twisted they burned their children alive as acts of worship. It was true of the exile of Israel and Judah after they made a mockery of God and became more despicable than the nations they had kicked out. If we look, all of these judgments were God cleansing his creation from suffering at the hands of great evildoers. And so the second principle that we have to see is that God's judgment has a purpose. And that purpose is restoration. The reinstatement of good. And I think it's when we see this that the first... Well, God judges evil. He's not random about it. And and second, his purpose in judging the evil is to cleanse his world from that evil and from the decay and, and corruption that it brings upon God's world. As we see those things, perhaps we can start to emotionally connect how God's judgment and his love fit together. And so let's spend a few moments there trying to unearth that. If God loves his creation, here's, here's where I think we're led. If God loves his creation, he must judge the evil that threatens it. And so our call to worship this morning, that the Lord judges the world with uprightness, that is completely compatible with 1 John 4, 8. God is love. If God does not judge sin, if he sees the corruption of his world, if he sees the suffering of the fatherless, if he sees the violent shooting of more than 230 people July 4th weekend, if he sees the greed that overlooks um, the, the structural damage that causes a deadly collapse of condos in Florida, if he sees the oppression of one race or gender over another, if he sees the schemes of the rich to get richer while the poor get poor, if he sees the rampant neglect and pain caused by people chasing their next high, whether drugs or sex or money or status, if he sees the abuse of the vulnerable and men and women who have deserted their spouses and children If God sees all that and does nothing, how can he be loving? God's love and God's judgment are not like oil and water. They go together. God's judgment is the overflow of his love to cleanse and purge his creation from the evil that threatens it. And so if the, if in the end, God does not judge, God is not love. 
Do we see that? Does that help with the, the emotional um, wiggling that we feel when we read about God's judgment in the Bible? Does it help us more fully embrace this God even when he judges? Because we see him doing something good. We see his love in action. There is, however, another problem, and it's very practical. It goes like this, brothers and sisters, that left to ourselves, as we look inside of our hearts and lives, we recognize that we ourselves are part of the evil that corrupts God's good creation. Now, you may or may not go around thinking that and feeling the emotional weight of it. But let me ask, among us, who has not hurt some of the people we love most? Who among us has not sought our own welfare instead of the good of another? Who among us has not turned in some way from the God of love and defined love in our own terms? And who among us hasn't been on the receiving end as other people have done those things to us? We know it hurts. We know it causes pain. We know it corrupts. It is anti-love. And so, left to ourselves, if God is going to fully love and restore creation, he must sweep us all away in the flood of his judgment. Left to ourselves, our sin corrupts what God loves. And so left to ourselves, we all sit under God's judgment. Now the gospel is called good news because the good news is we are not left to ourselves. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who was innocent of all evil, he did not stay in heaven aloof from this broken world. No, he came as a man and walked among us. He succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded where Noah failed and Abraham failed and David failed, where Israel failed and where we, you and I, fail. Where all others failed and committed evil, Jesus succeeded and resisted all evil. He alone is perfectly righteous. He never corrupted or hurt anybody or anything. And so if God's love requires him to purge his creation of all evil, yes, all evildoers may be swept away, but Jesus can remain. And friends, this is where the Bible just goes crazy. Because Jesus, who is completely free from God's judgment, chose to suffer God's judgment. Why would he do that? He chose to suffer God's judgment for sinners at the cross. Because, and here's where the irony comes in, because he loved them. He suffered God's judgment because he loved you. There's a clue at how love and judgment go together. God's judgment and love shine so brightly from the cross where Jesus willingly, willingly accepted judgment for sinners. 
Now, that means two things. That has two huge implications. It means, one, those sinners for whom Christ died, they are now free of God's judgment because God being just, he can't punish two people for the same sin. That wouldn't be just. And so if you are covered by the very blood of Christ today, God cannot judge you. But there's a second wonderful implication of this. And that is by trusting in Jesus, those sinners become Jesus' people. And as Jesus' people, they receive the same spirit of love that Jesus had. They become people who now grow in godlike love rather than those who only persist in evil. And so do you see what God has done? By sending Jesus and by sending his spirit, he has actually made sinful people the beginning of his restoration plan for creation. The the tide of evil has been reversed by those who have Jesus' spirit and those who begin to grow in love and diminish in their sin and evil. And so, yes, God's judgment is coming. Because he loves his creation so much, he will restore it to what it was meant to be by sweeping away evil and all evildoers. And there are two options. He can sweep us away, or Jesus can be swept away at the cross for you. Where do you sit this morning? If God's judgment fell upon the earth today, would you be swept away? Or could you say, because of the spirit that is in you, Christ was swept away for me? You see, until that final judgment falls, God is being patient. We we heard that from Peter's words, didn't we? God is being patient patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that all should turn to Jesus. And so he's holding back this cleansing, restorative judgment from creation so that all here would trust Jesus, all here would come to know him and become a part of this restoration project before judgment falls rather than be those who will be swept away in that cleansing judgment. And so as we look at these texts, when we look at how judgment and love go together, the application is clear. It is that we should come to this Christ, that we should trust him with all of our heart and all of our soul, that we should be unashamed of him, unswerving in our love for him, that we should be made new by him. Seeking to live lives of holiness like Peter described. And that we should tell everyone who will listen about his love that will one day judge the world. I want to close by reading again the text that Rob read for us this morning. Revelation chapter 21 verses 5 through 8. 
Because these are sure words. We're going to hear that. These are sure words that were written down. In, or, in other words, they were meant to be recounted. They were meant to be retold. These are the very words that need to penetrate us this morning and that we are entrusted to take and tell others. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. This is going to happen one day. And he who was seated on the throne, God, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. They're sure. If you're going to tell somebody something, tell them this. That's what God is saying here. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is ultimately what we get by coming to Jesus Christ. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion, because he's purging all evil, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, as we hear these words, let us pray. Lord, we ask that we would truly believe what we read, that that those words are trustworthy and true. That is why they were written down. That you are making all things new. And when you do, not one speck of sin, corruption, or evil will plague your world any longer. Lord, I pray that we would trust that it is your love that compels your judgment, that you do it simply not because you enjoy being angry or wrathful or that you delight in the death of the wicked. That is not true. But because your heart aches and is grieved by what sin has done to your world. Lord, I pray that many here seated in this room and many of those who are made in your image would turn to you now, would find forgiveness, safety, peace in the Messiah that you have provided, and that your restoration project would begin not with your judgment, but with your people that our hearts would be transformed, cleansed of evil, that we would walk uprightly before you in joy, knowing our God through the Holy Spirit that Christ has given to us. Lord, would this be true? And would we, like Isaiah and Peter and the early church, look with some trembling, but also look with great joy at your coming judgment.